0: Welcome back to Passing Judgment, a podcast about politics and the law and a lot of things in between. I'm your host, Loyola Law School Professor Jessica Levinson, and today we are joined by Peter Bergen. Peter is a national security analyst for CNN, a vice president at New America, and a professor at Arizona State University. He has testified before congressional committees 18 times about national security issues and has held teaching positions at Harvard and John Hopkins University. Peter is the author or editor of eight books, including three New York Times bestsellers and four Washington Post Best Nonfiction Books of the Year. This week marks the 20th anniversary of the September 11th terrorist attacks, and we're going to be talking with Peter about his new book, The Rise and Fall of Osama bin Laden. It was just released earlier in August, and I can honestly highly recommend it to all of our listeners. Welcome, Peter. Thank you for passing judgment with us. Thank you. This new book really is an intimate portrait of someone who created a terrorist organization dedicated to mass murder coming up on the 20th anniversary of 9-11. And I want to remind the listeners who already know that you're the world's expert on Bin Laden. You've written a lot about him, but you yourself interviewed him in 1997. And Obviously, so few people in the world will ever be or ever had the opportunity to be in a room with bin Laden. When you were sitting with him in 1997, did you think this is somebody who is capable of perpetrating what ended up happening on 9-11?
1: I mean, short answer, no. I mean, in 97, we didn't know much about him. I wasn't even sure precisely what he looked like. He'd made some threats against the United States in the Arabic language press. Um, It later transpired um, that his men were involved in training Somalis, involved in some shape or fashion in the uh, Black Hawk Down incident in which 18 American servicemen were killed in Somalia. But that was all in the future. He was actually indicted for that uh, secretly a few months after our interview. Um, It was only really with the embassy attacks in Africa in which he killed more than 200 uh, civilians, mostly Africans, uh, in Kenya and Tanzania, that it became clear that he had no compunction about mass casualty attacks. You know, in, in the past, terrorist groups tended to avoid mass casualty attacks for two reasons: one, they didn't want to turn off potential recruits, or two, they didn't want to, ha- you know, have some huge retribution against them. Uh, bin Laden really kind of changed that. Um, he didn't. Yeah, no compunction about killing as many civilians as possible. So that became clear in August of 1998.
0: So obviously, 1997 wasn't the beginning of your research into bin Laden. And this book perhaps is the culmination of so many years of research and investigation. And I'm just wondering, how did you go about the research for the book? What were some of the new materials that you relied on?
1: Well, the big tranche of new materials was um, the 470,000 files that were recovered in Abbottabad, Pakistan, where he was living for five and a half years. Many of those files were not particularly useful. They were cartoons his kids were watching, or he was an avid reader and he would get newspaper articles uh, kind of downloaded from the internet and then put on a thumb drive and then sent to him via courier. Uh, He also would draft documents 50 times. So there were about 6,000 pages of useful material, uh, one particularly useful piece of uh, new evidence uh, for bin Laden is what the CIA described as a bin Laden journal, which was handwritten in Arabic, 228 pages, and basically covered the last several weeks of his life. In fact, it was something a little more interesting, which was a bin Laden family journal. You know, One of the discoveries that I made writing this book was the extent to which he relied on his two oldest wives, both of whom had PhDs, to do his thinking for him. Um Hamza, which means the mother of Hamza, was 62 in 2011, the year he was killed, and he was 54, and she was under house arrest in Iran for about a decade um, after 9-11. She suddenly reappeared in his life on February 15th, 2011. He was tremendously excited about this. She was his favorite wife in many ways. B. He really looked up to her for her knowledge of the Quran. Uh, She claimed descent from the Prophet Muhammad, which was very important to bin Laden, and also, she had a PhD in child psychology and so and had an independent career before she married bin Laden. And she and another wife, Saham, who had a PhD in Quranic grammar, would meet every night with bin Laden in the last weeks of his life to grapple with what what he should say about the Arab Spring, which in bin Laden's view was the most important event that had happened in the Middle East in centuries. But it posed a bit of a dilemma for him because al-Qaeda's views, al-Qaeda's followers, his ideas were you know, noticeably absent from this uh, Arab Spring event, which was doing what he hoped to do, which was replacing the secular regimes in the Middle East. But he, but the people on the barricades were liberals or members of the Muslim Brotherhood who engage in conventional politics, and he wanted to insert himself. And you know, his two wives, his two oldest daughters, and his oldest son would meet every night to discuss the events of the day, to talk about them, and to talk about how he could take uh, control of the events of the Arab Spring, which is obviously a huge delusion but it's a delusion they all believed in.
0: I thought it was so interesting. I I read about and I've heard you talk about his two wives, both with PhDs, as you said, in different disciplines that he really looked up to in a way, these two older wives. And I don't think people would, if they're thinking about bin Laden, have a view of a man who would rely on highly educated women with graduate degrees as his advisors, and you really lay out how they had an important role, and particularly what you talked about, which I thought was so interesting, this kind of almost identity crisis of how does he position himself in the beginning of the Arab Spring, which, of course, I think began really just months before his death. Were there concrete steps that he tried to take to position himself as the leader, or was that all just grand delusions that he ever could try and take some control of the narrative of the Arab Spring.
1: He did have a big idea. Um, His big idea is that these new governments should be uh, advised by a council of religious scholars about the future direction of their governments. Now, of course, none of these new governments were clamoring for his advice. Uh, He did actually record a video which was released uh, posthumously uh, by Al Qaeda about two weeks after he was killed, in which he, you know, talked about how these events were very exciting, and and he proposed this religious council. Um, now, no one, you know, this was not an idea that people were seeking. Um, and of course, these religious scholars would have been Taliban-style religious scholars. He certainly came up with a speech, and his adult daughters edited it, and they all, you know, they kind of urged him to, you know, not to tarry, not to wait, uh, because his voice hadn't been heard from. And they said amongst themselves, you know, if if he doesn't speak soon, you know, people will sort of, he won't be an important figure. For them, he was a world historical figure. For them, they believed a speech that he delivered would take control of events of the Arab Spring. And so that was their big focus in the last weeks of his life.
0: We've both now, I think, used the word delusion a few times, we've talked about it with respect to really the end of his life where he's trying to take control of the Arab Spring, which in so many ways feels like an opportunity that's made for him and an opportunity that's exactly the opposite of that, that in fact has nothing to do with him. But you give a really detailed sketch of how I think his life was not inevitable, how it was not inevitable that he becomes the Osama bin Laden that we know as one of the greatest villains of our time. And I'm wondering if you can trace back, was there a triggering moment where you feel like these delusions, perhaps delusions of grandeur, really began? I know you talk about how he became a military leader in Afghanistan. Um, Did he have an outsized view of his role in Afghanistan, when they were fighting off the Soviets, or was that was he still based in reality at that time?
1: Uh, you know, w- but this is the big kind of why question, uh, which yeah. I don't. I don't do a lot of uh, armchair psychologizing in the book. I more explain how he radicalized. It was a process that took decades. You know, there is no kind of rosebud moment, as in Citizen Kane. He didn't flip a switch and change from becoming a Shy religious teenager to becoming a leader of Al Qaeda, it it really was a process. And you talk about his fighting against the Soviets in Afghanistan. I think that was was one of the many critical moments. His father died when he was ten. Uh, he, his parents divorced when he was two. He barely uh, had a relationship with his father. His father he had his father had fifty four other. Um, daughters and sons with other women. Uh, Bin Laden only appears to have met his father five times, only once having one substantive conversation with him, took his father's death very badly, turned to religion, aged 10, memorized the Quran, was a very religious teenager, went to Afghanistan in 1984, fought the Soviets rather bravely and personally in in 1987. He fought at a base in a place called Jaji, it was called The Base, Al-Qaeda in Arabic. Out of that became Al-Qaeda the organization in 1988 when it, it was more formalized, uh, uh, found, there was a formal founding uh, w- of which we have the minutes of. Um, and this, uh, so the outgrowth, the outgrowth of the Afghan war against the Soviets certainly was very important to all this. But, you know, what I, one of the things I try and say in the book is none of this was inevitable. There were off-ramps that, you know, he could have taken his... His parents, his mother uh, visited him in Sudan and Afghanistan, sort of pleading with him to sort of take a different path. His old friends and acquaintances, uh, Jamal Khashoggi, who is well known to anybody listening to this. um, Jamal Khashoggi was the first mainstream journalist to interview bin Laden from the Arab press in 1988. Wrote a huge piece in... um, Arab news, both in, in, in Arabic and in English, which really turned him into kind of a war hero in his native Saudi Arabia. Jamal Khashoggi then visited him in Sudan in 93. And there seems to have been a moment when Jamal Khashoggi said to bin Laden, look, do an interview with me, renounce violence, and that's probably a way back into getting in favor with the Saudis, who at that point had sort of essentially taken away his passport and um, in 1994, his citizenship was revoked. Bin Laden hung out with Jamal Khashoggi for about three days in Sudan, and seemed to be very ambivalent about his future course. He said he was so nostalgic for Medina, the city in which he had been living in Saudi Arabia, which of course is one of the two holiest sites in in Islam. But he never gave the interview to Khashoggi, and he uh, he never renounced violence. So I, one of the what I try and say in the book is that. There were off ramps that were presented, he never really took them. None of this was particularly not, there was no nothing inevitable about this. There were twists and turns. You know, he was exiled from Sudan in ninety-six, that sent him back to Afghanistan, the, the seat of his own mythology, because in his own mind he'd helped defeat the Soviets, even though there was absolutely no evidence for that. Uh, there were under bin Laden's control in Afghanistan, there might have been 300 Arabs at most at any given moment. Um, and there were one hundred and seventy-five thousand Afghans, at a minimum, estimated, to be fighting the Soviets. And Afghans don't need a lot of help, uh, you know, fighting. They certainly don't need help from a bunch of Saudis without any military experience, uh, such as Bin Laden. Um, and in fact, they looked on Bin Laden as sort of a, a bit of a joke when he proposed uh, after the Soviets left. Uh, there was a communist government in Afghanistan. Uh, bin Laden proposed some military plan to attack Kabul in 1992 when he was sort of searching for a purpose in life, in, sorry, in 1991. And they always looked on him as a money guy who were, had no serious military skills or strategies. The campaign he led from Jaji in eastern Afghanistan was in, relatively insignificant in the war. He was also involved in the big battle at Jalalabad in 1989, uh, which is relevant to today because ISIS K. Is that's the area where they first came from, uh, and you know that battle was a fiasco as well. So Bin Laden, in his own mind, uh, had helped defeat the Soviets, but really, his, as a military strategist, he was he really had no idea what he was doing.
0: We're talking with Peter Bergen, author of The Rise and Fall of Osama Bin Laden, and Peter, you just talked about so many things that I think are important for the book, that none of this was inevitable, that there were a number of off-ramps. You brought up the fact that Ben Laden had 54 siblings, none of whom obviously took this particular course. And then you ended by discussing um, Ben Laden as a a military leader and his kind of views of himself versus reality. And I, I think that probably does, just due to time constraints, bring us to talking a little bit more about the 20th anniversary of 9-11. And my first question is somebody who's followed bin Laden and obviously national security for decades. Is it possible to overstate how much one man changed U.S. foreign policy? Do we tend to put too much focus on bin Laden and not enough on the network he created? Or is it fair to really focus on the man himself?
1: You know, I, it's a very old-fashioned view of history, which I happen to hold. Uh, it's, you know, the so-called great man view of history, which doesn't mean that Bin Laden's a great man. But why were the French at the gates of Moscow uh, in 1812? Uh, there's no explanation other than Napoleon's both ego and uh, genius at battle. Um, you know, there's a, a huge discussion of Hitler's role in the Holocaust. It's hard to, I, in my view, without without Hitler, there is no Holocaust. Uh, of course, both Napoleon and Hitler relied on uh, the organizations that that they created um, to implement their vision. Uh, and I'm not saying Bin Laden is as significant historically as either of those people, but he is one of those people who changed history. And in fact, the Times reviewed the book, the New York Times reviewed my book, and they in the in the paper version of the review, it. it they, I like the title they gave it. They said, the terrorist who changed everything. And, uh, you know, Bin Laden, there was a lot of pushback within Al-Qaeda about the 9-11 concept. Uh, there was a sort of summit meeting of jihadis in a year before 9-11, which uh, they, you know, Noman ben who's a former leader of the Libyan Islamic Fighting Group and had known Bin Laden a long time, essentially said, you know, attacking the United States was a very dumb idea that would essentially destroy the jihadist movement. Even within, and he wasn't part of Al-Qaeda formally. Um, the military commander of al-Qaeda, Saif al-Adil, the religious leader of al-Qaeda, Abu Al Mauritani, advised against the attacks either because they were concerned about what it would do to the Taliban uh, or even because they were concerned about civilian casualties and like, was this really justified un- under mm-hmm. Islam. So there was pushback internally, and then there was plenty of push realisation by others within Al-Qaeda and its orbit after nine eleven. what a disaster Bin Laden had led them towards. And But that's all by way of saying, you know, bin Laden, it was Bin Laden's idea. One of the themes of the book is the extent to which uh, Ayman al-Zawari, who's now the leader of Al-Qaeda, his after nine eleven, he was sort of portrayed as the brains of Al-Qaeda. I think that portrayal was quite significantly uh, incorrect. Um, I myself had sort of... Um, Written, uh, Zawahiri played this key role, but it turns out that Zawahiri was very marginal. And Bin Laden's big idea before nine eleven was attack the United States, then the near enemy regimes like the Egypt and Saudi Arabia would fall because the United States would pull out of the Middle East. This was his idea and his idea alone, his conception. Uh, even and you know he he just kind of like a, like many sort of. Uh, you know, he, he comes from this very rich family. I think there's a pretty high degree of entitlement that comes with that sometimes. Um, and he just, it was his way or the highway. And if if, he, if people disagree with him, he would shop around for other people in Al-Qaeda who agreed with him. So I think that, you know, without bin Laden, it's hard to imagine there was nine eleven because there wasn't a big constituency in Al-Qaeda to do that. Uh, the people who were training in Afghanistan, A lot of them were coming from jihadi groups in Libya, Tunisia, Egypt, pick your country. And they were really hoping to overthrow the, you know, their governments in, in their own countries. They weren't, they hadn't signed up for this anti-American crusade, uh, well, wrong term, probably anti-American, anti-American jihad, uh, uh, that Bin Laden was leading. But, you know, for Bin Laden, it also had the, um, added benefit that, uh, this was a big idea around which he could get all these disparate groups to kind of, kind of buy into, um, with, and, uh, So I I do think that without bin Laden, it's very hard to explain 9-11.
0: How do we go from the wealthy person on the street who's the religious fanatic and has an outsized view of himself from bin Laden? How do we get so many people to follow him? I mean, what was it about him? Obviously... Napoleon isn't Napoleon without followers. Hitler isn't Hitler without followers. The same thing goes for bin Laden. It might have been none of this happens without him, but none of it happens without the followers either.
1: Well this gets to some pretty deep philosophical questions that you may be better equipped to answer than me. I mean I look if Hitler if you if anybody listening to this conversation had gone to a beer hall in Munich in the 20s and saw Hitler sort of lecturing they wouldn't have said oh, hey, that guy has enormous charisma and I want to follow him. Um so you know the nature of charisma and and why you decide to be led is it, that's these are very tricky questions. I do try and make an, an attempt at, at answering that in the book Uh, I describe a number of Bin Laden's followers who describe how exciting it was to meet Bin Laden. They called him Sheikh, which is a term of respect. They talk about a lot of excitement around meeting with him. And, you know, people would watch him on television and they volunteer to go and fight in Afghanistan. Clearly, that is not charisma that I feel or that probably anybody on this (laughs) listening to this would feel. Um, But clearly, he had some kind of charisma. He spoke in classical Arabic. He, you know, he was a poet. Uh, at least, and, you know, I, I'm not equipped to say how good a poet, but he uh, he certainly had rhetorical skills that I think were useful. But his, over time, his, um, when you look at public opinion polling about bin Laden, his appeal over time really collapsed. And it kind of collapsed roughly around the same level as support for suicide bombing sort of collapsed in the Muslim world because so many of the the Victims of these attacks were Muslim civilians in Iraq, in Pakistan, pick your Muslim country where Al Qaeda, its affiliates, or like-minded groups operate. And so, I think his 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 appeal has collapsed over time. Um, he died, you know, not fighting on a field of jihad, but you know, surrounded by his family in a squalid suburban compound in a provincial Pakistani city. And so, it wasn't a heroic denouement. Um, and you know, I think largely, you know, his, his influence lives on to some degree on the internet. He's still regarded as an inspirational city, uh, figure by groups like ISIS, who, even though they're in a conflict with Al Qaeda, Bin Laden is still seen as a heroic figure. I don't know if that kind answers the question.
0: I think it answers that, as you said, somewhat existential question about as well as anybody possibly can. And maybe we'll, End with something you just talked about, which is his last few days. Here's somebody who obviously, I think, really changed the course of world history. Again, maybe not as much as Hitler, maybe not as much as Napoleon, but certainly will be among the people who we read about in the history books and people will continue to read your books for decades. Can you tell us? It just seems like such a huge. Difference, what a gulf between the power he had over people's lives and the way his own life ended. Could you walk us through what his living situation looked like really over the last few weeks of his life?
1: He had three of his wives who ranged in age from 28 to 62. He had a dozen of his kids and grandkids living with him. So there were 16 members of the Bin Laden family. He had two bodyguards and a total of 11 family members. The bodyguards were fed up of protecting the world's most wanted man. Uh, they'd had a pretty acrimonious discussion and uh, planning to leave him after a decade of protecting him. And he was entirely reliant on them. Uh, and this was sort of freaking him out. In, in addition to the Arab Spring kind of conundrum we've already discussed, he took the unusual step of writing the bodyguards a letter on January 15th, 2011, despite the fact that they all lived together on the same compound, saying, look, our our last uh, discussion was so acrimonious, I wanted to get down in writing what the plan is. And the plan was that the bodyguards could leave as early as July 2011. This actually underlines why uh, President Obama's decision to do the uh, raid uh, at the end of April beginning of May was important because one of the concerns that the white house and the president obama had himself was what if bin Laden left the compound well it turns out that that was the plan because the compound wasn't in his name it was in, it was in the name of the, one of the bodyguards um, and so not only were his bodyguards leaving he was going to have to find another location to hide in so the last you know weeks of his life he was you know thrilled by the arab spring concerned by his bodyguards leaving happy that his oldest wife had suddenly reappeared in his life um, you know, churning out memos, a great, you know, he would write 40 page memos to his, uh, subordinates, uh, trying to micromanage Al Qaeda and its affiliates to the best of his ability. And so that's kind of a snapshot of, and, and on the night that he was killed, you know, he heard the very unusual thud of helicopter rotors above. It, and he, then there was a crash at one of the helicopters, American helicopters crashed into his compound, he knew immediately then that the, the game was up. The Americans had found him. Uh, he told his wives and his daughters, the Americans are here. And so in the last 15 minutes of his life, he realized that they, you know, this, this compound that he thought was going to protect him uh, didn't. And the Americans had found him. He didn't put up any resistance. He had two uh, weapons in his room, AK-47 and a sort of submachine gun. Um, he, he didn't use those, uh, and a pistol, sorry. Uh, he didn't use those. He... Um, he for I, I, it's not quite clear why was he confused it was completely dark, the electricity was off in the neighborhood, there was no light in the house he didn't put up a resistance in the end you know, the Americans killed him
0: Peter Bergen author of The Rise and Fall of Osama bin Laden there are insights like that and so many others in the book and I really again want to recommend it to the listeners, Peter thank you so much for passing judgment with us
1: Jessica thank you
0: you can find Peter Bergen on Twitter at Peter Bergen CNN. You can find me on Twitter at Levinson Jessica. I want to thank the listeners for having these conversations with us and we wish everybody a great day.